The last time we spoke, we were on chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And uh, what we have going on there, in the previous chapters, Jesus is in Capernaum at this time. He's up, and Capernaum is sort of, if you're looking at a map, it's sort of the, uh, sort of the, the, the northernmost eastern part up there, okay? Little mountain ranges there, real close to the, the Sea of Galilee. A couple of things that have been going on. Uh, it's the same area where, where Jesus uh, restores uh, Peter's mother-in-law. It's the same area where he, uh, he heals a paralytic. He heals a, a blind man there, and he... Uh, he raises Jairus' uh, son. So all these things are going on, and the folks are beginning to follow. The multitudes are beginning to, to grow in following this, this Messiah, this Jesus. And uh, at this particular point, Jesus heads off towards one of the mountainsides. He needs a little alone time. And he takes his disciples with him, and he finds a little mountainside. And as he's going up there, he sits down, and I, I imagine, in looking at some of the pictures, I imagine it's sort of like we are right now, except he's sort of sitting down like this, and the hillside is going down like, like you guys are right now, and he's, he's got his disciples around him, sort of in a, I, I picture sort of a half-moon shape, right? And he's there, and he's talking to them. They can't see the multitudes behind them, but he can. And so he sits there, and he turns to Philip, and as he's looking at the multitudes coming up, he turns to Philip and he says, Philip, my paraphrase, Philip, why don't you turn around and just take a quick glance at what's happening right now. He says, tell me, what can we do to make sure that these people eat tonight? Philip turns around and he looks and he goes, oh man. He says, Lord, even if we had eight months of wages, it wouldn't be enough to feed these folks, even just a little. I got a feeling that, that, that Philip sort of thought it wasn't his particular, uh, how should I put it? It didn't really matter to him whether they ate or not. He says, hey, I can't do anything about it. I don't have eight, eight months wages and I can't do anything. But remember, the rest of the disciples were listening. And so I have a feeling, Andrew was in there listening and Andrew catches it. And he starts going through the crowd as they're coming up because they're settling down. And he finds this young lad with, with uh, a couple of loaves of bread, some barley bread, and some fish. And so he's raising his hand. Hey, Jesus, Lord, I got some food here. You got to remember that Andrew was part, part of the team that was in Capernaum, and he was watching everything that Jesus was doing. The healing, bringing sight to the blind, the paralytic dropping their crutches and walking. So he knew, he understood that Jesus could do these things. So he raises his hand, he brings his, this, uh, this snack that this lad has, and he puts him before Jesus. And I'm sure, I'm positive, that he had this look of expectancy. I just can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. And Jesus didn't disappoint him. He grabs the fish, he brings them before the Father, he blesses them, and he has them hand out. He brings the barley bread, and again, he brings it before the Father, he breaks it, he gives thanks, and they hand the bread out. Everybody there gets their fill. Everyone that was there. The scripture tells us there were about 5,000 men. As we look 
as we look at the case, we know that there were women and children involved. So a, conservative, a good conservative estimate should be somewhere around 12 to 15,000 people on that mountainside. When I first read that years ago, I said, no way could that happen. Then I started to look at some of the mountainsides that they had there, and that was an easy thing to do. He had, he'd probably had a, a third of, of Capernaum following him, you know, coming out. They, they, they left their homes. They did everything they need to because they were following Jesus. They had a healer, and they had a meal ticket. And those two together, you can't go wrong. And they were following him. So he gets the crowd to settle down. There, in another part of the Gospels, uh, somebody mentions, or Jesus mentions, that we need to send these people off so they can find a place to sleep, to camp out overnight, and also get some food. But the sun was going down, and it was too late. And so he has them settle in. They're camping out. They've got their little campfires going on. And Jesus knows that he needs some alone time. He needs to be alone with the Father. So what he does, he makes it up further up the mountain. And he finds a spot. I get the impression that the disciples were really liking the multitudes behind them. You know, it's easy to get a, get a big head when the following begins to grow. You know, because, hey, my master's doing all these things. And, and, and they've had a chance to, to see and be at his right hand and see these things, delivering, delivering the healings and delivering the food. You know, that was probably really mesmerizing them, and they were liking it. But what he does, he sends them out. He knows there's a storm coming, but he probably thought it was safer to send his disciples out into the storm than to keep them there with the multitudes. It wouldn't have helped them at all. Because they would have been patting him on the back, they would have been cheering him on, and they would have been receiving all the credit as opposed to the Father receiving the credit. So Jesus does something wise. He sends them off to the boat, onto the sea. He knew that there was a storm coming. And of course, you know, there is a storm. They're crying out. Jesus walks on water. You know, he tells them, hey, don't fear. It's not a ghost, it's me. And then the next thing we know, they're on the other side. So one of the things that Jesus does as he, he moves off to this alone time is that he leaves the multitudes. He doesn't, he doesn't stop to, to, uh, uh, to let them know where he's going. He doesn't hand out a, a brochure or a bulletin as to where they're going to find him next. So they camp out. They wake up early in the morning. They look around, and, and the first thing they notice is that their meal ticket is gone. He's not there, and they're ready for breakfast. But the cook is nowhere around. They're looking around. They don't see the disciples either. Either, But from that side of Galilee, it's easy enough to see action going on the other side. Because they weren't completely, uh, or, or horizontally, they didn't go completely on the other side. Where they ended up in, in, the, in, the, sea of, uh, in the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, they went sort of a, at about a 30 degree angle and landed in, in another town. So the folks there could actually see the boats on the other side. So they could do one of two things. They had their own boats, they could go on the other side, or they could actually walk around and end up in the same place where Jesus was at. So one of the things, there, there's, a, there's a passage in, uh, in Isaiah 42, 43, 2 and 3. When I thought about how the disciples... Probably, had, probably reacted to Jesus telling them, time for you to get on the boat 
and go to the other side. I'll meet you there. And they have, they have to leave the crowd. I don't think they all agreed with him to get back on the boat and move. Some of them really wanted to stay, I'm sure. But Isaiah 43, 2, and verse 2 and 3 tells us this. It says, through, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through fire, through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. And they had, they had to obey Jesus, probably even when they didn't agree with him. And sometimes we do that. We don't agree, but we know we have to obey. So important. So the next morning, the crowd gets up, and they're hungry. They look around. Jesus isn't anywhere near. So they, they finally figure out where he's at. And instead of going back home to, to the, other, the inner parts of Capernaum, they head off to where they see the disciples are at, and they cross over to the lake. The crowd seems to have no higher priority than to be with Jesus. There's a good chance they're looking like more than just fans. They're almost looking like followers. Almost, but by the time they catch up to Jesus, they're starving. They miss a chance to order breakfast, but now they're ready for lunch, and they know there's a menu. But Jesus has decided to shut down the buffet. No more. He's not handing out any more freebies. And we're back to John 6, and verses 26 and 27. This is what Jesus tells the crowd. If we could get that verse of scripture up. If not, you have Bibles in the pew. There we go. He says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes overnight, but labor for the food which endures for everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So now he begins to lose the multitudes. Jesus decides to have this, this talk with them. This, to determine the relationship, talk with them. And he knows that these people are not going to all the trouble and the sacrifice because they've been following him, but because they're following the food. In verse 35, Jesus, Jesus offers himself, and the question comes, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never, go, never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never grow thirsty. When Jesus is the only thing on the menu for us, you'll find out if he's the only one you're really hungry for. When there are no other options, that's when you find out if Jesus is enough. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. I've changed the names in order to protect the guilty. Okay? I have a lot of these stories in my life, and I'm sure some of you have these too. The first... The first person I want to tell you about is a gentleman by the name, we'll call him Rudy. Rudy, I, made about, I met about, 20, about 28 plus years ago. He was, uh, at that time, he was a supervisor in a major utility company here in town. And uh, I had the opportunity to work on, under him for a while. But as I got to know him, uh, he revealed to me that he was a, he was a practicing Catholic, a, pra a practicing Roman Catholic. He would go to Mass 
almost every morning if he could. Uh, uh, he would go to confession every Saturday. Sunday morning, first mass, he was there. W- without, without fail, he was there all the time. During his lifetime, he was involved many years with CYO, it's Catholic Youth Organization. He followed every single rule that he possibly could concerning his religion, his church. He was a great follower of his church. I talked I talk to friends, I talked to family, and as far as they were concerned, this guy was a living and walking saint. He could do no wrong in their eyes. Watching him operate at work and watching him operate with other people, you know what? The guy was always wanting to do the very best. And we began to sit down and we began to talk about, and, and coming out of the, the same area that he was in, we began to talk about Christ. And we began to talk about why he was on the cross, his cross, and not on mine. And we would, we would have a number of mornings having coffee together, speaking about the sacrifice of Christ, why he had to sacrifice, about Adam's sin. We started from Genesis and we worked our way around. And he realized something. Everything, every step that he was taking in what he was doing, it was beginning to feel real empty for him. He said, even though he did that, and I'm telling you, when I, I could give an early morning call, he says, where's Rudy? He says, well, you know, he just left for Mass. But he should be back shortly, you know. And uh, every, every feast that went on in, in the Catholic religion, he was there. He was there. He knew, every, he knew every priest, almost every priest in town, you know. And he knew especially the ones in his particular parish. He'd been there a long time. His kids all went to, to, uh, to uh, uh, a Catholic school. And, uh, but Don knew something was missing. And we, when we began to speak, especially going through the Gospel of John, of seeing who Jesus really was, and that he was God, and that he died for him personally, and that the only way that he could get to heaven is to, is to have this Jesus intervene or invade his life. That's the only way he could get to heaven. No matter how many times he came to communion, no matter you know, how, many, how many rosaries he prayed, no matter how many times he came up, did this, did that, that was not going to get him to heaven. One day, one day, we came to that point, and he says, I know what I have to do. When Rudy made that decision, I watched a real transformation take place in this man. He was, he was hungering for Jesus day and night. People that we talked, anybody that would listen to him, he would share the love of Jesus Christ. He started with his family. His wife came on board. You know, she had a Lutheran background, but she came on board. Uh, weekly, weekly, weekly Bible studies. I need some water, pardon me. Weekly Bible studies, not a hassle for, for Rudy. He enjoyed them. He had questions left and right. Every study that we went through, you know, he was deeply involved. Memorizing scripture, first time I, I sat him down, I said, I can never memorize. I'm too old. I can't do that. And within a year's time, he probably had 12 to 15 verses of scripture memorized. And he was working on, on memorizing the books of the Bible. He took his bride every night and they would read the Bible before they went to bed. All these things were new, but he had such a, hungry for Jesus, uh, such a hunger for Jesus Christ. And I mean, it changed him. His, 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 his language, his, his, his demeanor was even better than it was before then. Rudy came to that understanding that Jesus was not only more than enough, but he was the only thing that he was concerned about. One day, 
He was exercising, and he had a fall on, on his treadmill. That fall took him to the hospital. That hospital got him involved with tests, and they told him that he had a brain tumor, and it was inoperable. The talks that I had with him were important, and they stay with me. Two things he had on his mind as he was going to, because he had a date. We all have a date. We don't know it. He had a date. He was closer to knowing it. Two things on his mind. Number one, had he made every right move concerning uh, how his wife would be cared for after he was gone. He checked all his P's and Q's. He, got, he, he had that. The second thing on his mind is to make sure that his children came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he began praying for them the day that he committed his life to Jesus. I remember that. For Don, he was a follower of Christ. He's home. He's got his reward. And uh, a week ago, I got a phone call from his wife. I got it on my message, on my voicemail. Called her back. She wasn't there. But she left his voice on her voicemail. And the moment I heard his voice, just a flood of memories came back uh, of me and this, this older man. I mean, just amazing. Don loved Jesus. For, G- for Don, or for Don, for, for Rudy, that's the other one. For Rudy, that was more than enough. Jesus was it. The next one, we'll call him Sam. Sam was interesting, younger man. We had somebody in our community group that was witnessing to him at work. And uh, she would mention, there was somebody at work we need to pray for, and we would pray. We had a name, and that was it, and we just prayed. One day, he actually joined us in, in our Bible study. And he began to, to give us questions. And the group was, was answering some questions, and some we had to think about and come back the following week, you know. And some things began to, to be unveiled. With Sam, God was working, and we knew it. Because it just took three or four weeks... And his lifestyle was revealed before us. We knew, we knew he was married, had a family, not too far from where we were having our Bible study. And, and, and he revealed to us that there was an extramarital affair going on. Divorce was, was, was on the horizon because he wanted to leave. you know, And for all, for all the wrong reasons. But this is where he was at. And we continued to talk. We talked about what God said about marriage, what God said about divorce, what God said about loving your wife as, lo- as God loves, the- as Jesus loved the church. We talked about salvation. We talked about, uh, about Christ, the cross, the resurrection. And he kept coming up with more and more questions. There was a change going on. It was slow, but it was happening. But he had a firm attitude about him. So it was always hard to read sometimes. I didn't know if there was, be- there was going to be confrontation or we were just going to sit down and have, have a talk. One day I got a call. I got home early from work. Uh, I no sooner you know, laid my bag down, and, and I get a call, and he wants to talk to me. And the voice sounded a little, a little harsh. We need to talk. And I'm going, okay, I'm home. I didn't realize that he was already on my block. You know, He was looking for me, got on my block, and he came, knocked on my door. He says, we need to talk. I says, okay, can we go for a walk? Lord, just give me a little peace as we're doing this. Big man, you know, and so we're, we start hitting the sidewalk and we're walking. Tell me again. Tell me again about why Jesus died for my sins. Tell me, I, tell me again why the cross had to happen. And then tell me again, if, if the, is the rex, resurrection really true? You know, tell me again that he can change who I am. 
And tell me again that he can show me how to love my wife. And we went through all that. Took a couple of, couple of blocks, you know. But we did it. But I can tell you that from that moment on, that man was transformed. That day he gave Jesus all he had. And he gave him everything. He stepped on. He gave him his house. He gave him his pool. He gave him his car. He gave him his wife. He gave him his kids. He gave him his finances. He gave him his job. He gave it all to him. And Sam was transformed. I watched, we in, in our community group, we watched his marriage transformed. He dropped what he was doing. He began to, to love his wife like he'd never loved her before. The relationship between him, his wife, his kids just changed dramatically. He began to get involved in, 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 in a local community church. He began to get involved there. And as time went on, he just got stronger in his walk. Everything had to do with Jesus, or he pretty much wasn't doing it. Even when he got his motorcycle, it had to do with Jesus. There was something behind that, and he did it. We lost him early. You know, it was one of those things. God took him home. But he was right before God. And this I know about Sam. Jesus was more than enough for him. He was a true follower. He could see nothing else but Jesus because Jesus transformed everything around him. And he was willing to follow. He died to himself, picked up his cross daily, and he walked with the Messiah. That was Sam. Now, in John chapter 6, we see that the crowd has decided if Jesus is enough. They have to decide. Are they hanging around for the perks? Or is it really about relationship? Do you remember what happened? The fans turned and they went home. And here's what we read in John, John 6, 66. From this time on, many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It didn't just say that the multitude departed. It said that many of his disciples, aside from the 12, you know, there was probably, if we consider the size of, a, of the multitude that was there, you know, he probably had a couple of hundred that actually followed him and said, we're your disciples. He turned and they turned around and went back. They didn't want to follow him anymore. In the long run, and it usually happens, scripture, scripture tells us that wide is the road that leads to destruction, right? Narrow is the path that leads to righteousness. In the end, whether or not we like it, and, and I, I speak of this to myself and others all the time, most people, just like in Jesus' day, most people will not accept the invitation that Christ gives. Most are going to reject. And that's heartbreaking for us that have in mind the gospel of Jesus Christ. To go out into all the world, right? Rem reminding them of what Jesus taught us, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, they like the idea of heaven. Most people do. They like the idea of miracles. They like, they like the bread. They like the free show. They like the chance to be around a lot of people. And they like the excitement. But when Jesus wipes that all, all that off the table and he only offers himself, most are not interested. They bail out. In John chapter 6, many of his disciples had left. Jesus turns to the other 12 and what does he tell them? You guys also want to leave? 
One answer, right? Peter stands up. It's always Peter standing up. I love that man. I don't know how Jesus said that when he approached him. And I don't know if he was frustrated or angry with them. My guess is that he spoke with a tone of disappointment and sadness as it becomes clear why so many were really following him. And even though he was God, you know, it must have tugged on his heart that the vast majority of those that he was speaking to would turn around and leave. So, how would it feel if you started to date someone and you, you took them to the movies? We've all done that, right? First date, you, you meet someone, you take them to a movie, they have a good time, you pay for the tickets, you know, you, you, you pay for the popcorn, you pay for the iced tea or the soft drink, and you have a really nice time. The date is over, and, and before you leave, you say, hey, can we do this again? And they, well, Yeah, I had a great time, let's do it again. So you set up another date, and this time you're thinking, oh, you know what, I had such a great time. I'd like to advance the relationship a little bit, so I'm going I'm to take this person to a nice restaurant. And you do. You, you, you take her to a nicer restaurant or him to a nicer restaurant, it's probably going to be her. When the, uh, the meal is done, the tab comes, you pay for it all. You pay the tip, and everything works. I mean, every, they all had a good time. And you know, you tell yourself, I'd like to do this again. I'm really growing, really growing fond of this one. I said, I wonder if this is the one for me. And so you ask, hey, could we do this again? I'm really having such a great time. And of course, yeah. And it goes on. So you go three or four months, and, and these days progressively are getting better and better. You know, it's beyond the first name. You know, you're holding hands. You know, you're talking about, you know, what your family does, what, what their family does, you know, what they do on vacations, on Easter, on Christmas. All these things are happening. So you're thinking, man, this is getting serious. I think this is the one. So you give a call. You know, I'd like to go on a special date with you. Can we, you know, I'll pick you up 7.30 something. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll be ready. So you go, you pick up your date, and you decide to go to the park. Grab her hand, and you're walking around through the park, you know, and, and then you start talking to her about all the good times we've had, the movies, you know, the, the, the picnics that we've had, uh, the restaurants that we've gone to, you know, some of the family outings that you've invited me to. I've had a great time. And then you see this park bench, and you sit down. And you turn, you're holding hands, and you, and you look into her face, and you say, you know, I want to do everything I can to make you happy so that your life is fulfilled. I really think that you're the one for me. And all of a sudden, she removes her hands, and she goes, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Is this the date? Is this the special date? Aren't we going to do something? And that blows everything, right? I mean, then you begin to think, man, all, all that they wanted from this date were the movies, the food, you know, and the restaurants, the walks, the holding hands, all that was, but they don't want to get serious. I don't know about you, but that would tend to do something to my, to my heart, especially if I've spent months preparing the ground, Right? That's what we do. You know, as good farmers, we're preparing the ground and we're hoping that the, the seeds that we're planting, you know, we're going to see fruit. And all of a sudden, no, this is not the one. You know, you can take me home right now. Been there, done that. Yeah, I know. We've all had that, we've all had that magic moment. So, I can only imagine how Jesus may have felt. 
So he asked his disciples, the men that he's grown closest to, whether or not they're going to leave him. Would his most devoted disciples turn out just to be fans? They weren't willing to stick around when the teaching got tough. Was this group more focused on the crowds that Jesus attracted than on the message of life eternal? Would they abandon Jesus? In chapter, chapter 6 of John, verses 68 and 69, this is what we read. Peter, Simon Peter stands up and he answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter's answer sums it up. To whom shall we go? That one question seems to ask thousands of other questions. Like, who could lead us the way you do? Who could teach us with the wisdom like yours? Who could possibly bring us closer to God? And why would we ever want to leave Messiah? Who else is worth following compared to you? And how could we ever find someone else like you? You see, fans will bail on Jesus, especially when the teachings get difficult. When he asks them to sacrifice. When he asks them to keep or to take up their cross daily. Sometimes, for some of us, it's every hour. When he asks them to die to themselves, fans normally take off. They split. And I don't think they do that just because they prefer comfort. Because if they knew, and I'm convinced that their actions would prove this, if they were guaranteed a ticket to heaven, if they had full assurance that Jesus was the Son of God, if they could be completely and 100% positive that following Jesus would lead to an eternity of bliss and worship and joy in the presence of the Lord, I'm confident that they would stick with it. If all of us believed in you with every ounce of our being, I think we would have an easier time swallowing some of the tougher portions of Scripture. If all of us knew and believed the way that those disciples did, I think that we'd be willing to stand strong for God's teachings on sexuality when it comes up among our friends, among our peers. If all of us knew and believed that Jesus was Lord, I think that we'd approach sharing our faith in a much different way. But here's the problem. We don't know the way we wish, and we don't believe the way we should. Let me repeat that. We don't know the way we wish, so we don't believe the way we should. We wish that we could have it all laid out for us, right? Every single problem, every single issue, you know, you'd open up the book and you'd have the ABCs of what it's going to take to clear that problem. That's, that's what we wish. We wish that God would ride in the sky just above our homes, right? You're thinking, whether or not to sell my home, whether or not to send the kids to college, and what, all you do is go out the back door, right? Close the door, you look up in the sky above your house, and it says, uh, Jose, yeah, go ahead and send them to college. As a matter of fact, send them to the U of A. Uh, no, don't sell your house today. Why don't you wait about two months? See, that would be so cool if we could do that. We wish that he would give us a vision. You're on your knees before you go to bed, Lord. This is what I'm up against. Please give me the vision tonight and let it happen. You hit, your head hits the pillow, and boom, the reel begins to turn. And you see it in full color. He gives you the vision. You know exactly what to do. You get up in the morning and boom, you're doing one, two, three, four, and it's done. We wish that he'd send an angel to give us some kind of unmistakable sign 
that he is alive and in charge and that Jesus is his son. Wouldn't that make it easy for us? But life is not like that, is it? And it wasn't like that for the disciples. Don't think for a minute that's the way they had it. Sure, they were able to witness the miracles, but eventually they had to choose to know and believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. Choosing to know and believe is a choice that we make just like the disciples made. Because if we believe the same, the same fire and passion that they had, I believe we would show that same passion in our lives. In the end, it comes down to whether or not Jesus is enough for you. Only you can answer that question. And it comes down to whether or not you'll choose to, re- to move from being a fan, just somebody who, who is a, a, an extreme admirer of Jesus and all the things that he does, to being one who is committed and following, picking up your cross daily, dying to yourself daily. For me, sometimes that's minute by minute, trust me. I did that a couple of times before I landed on property today, so I know. It's true that we don't know ah, before we get there. So we have to come as individuals to make that decision. I have a short clip for you to watch. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment. Those are the two guarantees. We will all die and we will all stand before God. When that moment comes to all of us, there is only one question that will really matter. Is have you decided to follow Jesus? If I could, I would ask you that question differently because it's very personal. I wish I could come over to your house and knock on your door. Hopefully I could talk you into letting me come in and sit down for a few minutes. And I would want to sit across the kitchen table from you and look you in the eye and ask you this question. I know that when you hear me ask, have you decided to follow Jesus, many of you quickly nod your head yes and say, yeah, I'm a follower. But why do you say that? Because I'm not asking if your parents were followers. I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not asking if you say grace before meals or if you come to church. I'm not even asking if you believe in Jesus. I am asking, are you a follower of Jesus? Because one day there are many who say, I am a follower that will stand before God and be declared fans. So, we, uh, we don't know the day, but we know his name. And it's true, we don't know the day when Christ will return. We don't know when our health might fail. We don't know when our finances might plummet. And we don't know when we'll die. We'll never know that. But even though we don't know the day, we know his name. I know none of us want to be declared fans at the end, on Judgment Day. And I know we aren't offered the guarantee that we always want. But Jesus does offer a guarantee. Jesus guarantees that if you put your trust in him, 
He will never fail you. He guarantees that if you stake your life on his message of truth, he will stake his life on your eternity in heaven with him. Jesus also guarantees that if you put your trust and hope in him, he'll guide you on to an eternity with God the Father. We won't and we don't know the day, but we do know his name. The scripture tells us in Acts 4.12 that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But you have to decide that. I can't do it for you. Hubbies can't do it for their wives. Wives can't do it for their hubbies. Moms can't do it for their sons. Can't do it for their daughters. And vice versa. But you have to decide, are you a fan? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Because all of those guarantees are for the followers who refuse to leave his side, those who ask, to whom shall we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life, and we believe and know that you are the Holy One sent from God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you because you are the Holy One. I thank you because you are God. And I thank you that the only option that we have, really have, is to believe that you are Lord and you are Savior that you died for my sins and that you resurrected that I may have eternal life with you. I don't know what that looks like, but I get a lot of pictures in the scripture. And anywhere that you're at, that's going to be heaven. And I am overwhelmed by that thought alone, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, that has never made that acknowledgement before you, if they've never allowed the Savior to come in and transform them, that today would be the day. We don't know the time, but we do know your name, Jesus. And we thank you for that. Amen.